Hi there, welcome back to the Nonfiction Podcast. I'm David Leach, a professor of creative nonfiction in the Department of Writing at the University of Victoria. And I'm Deborah Campbell, and I'm also a professor of nonfiction writing at the University of Victoria. And today we are here with J.B. McKinnon, a best-selling author, uh, intrepid magazine journalist, author most recently of The Day the World Stops Shopping, which was just uh, recently a finalist for the Governor General's Award in nonfiction, also uh, four other four other books. Uh, some of you will have heard of The 100 Mile Diet, which he co-authored with uh, Lisa Smith, and of course, uh, The Once and Future World, which was uh, another uh, national bestseller. Um, and uh, you may have seen his work also in uh, The New Yorker and Atlantic. So we have an opportunity right now to ask James uh, questions about uh, the writing itself and the writing life. Um, James, you've been um, at this for quite a while, say 20 some years. I won't date you, but... Um, <laughs> Um, I, I, I like to think of the kind of writing that you do as one of those, uh, you know, Orwell talked, uh, George Orwell talked about turning journalism into art. Um, do you have any uh, ways of thinking about the kind of writing that you do? It can be hard to explain to people who think nonfiction writing is, or journalism is sort of what they read in the newspaper per se, but I wonder if you have any um, sort of guiding stars in terms of how you think about nonfiction writing. Well, one way that I've described what I do uh, before, I suppose, is I refer to myself as a grand narratives reporter. So. <laughs> I do feel like in some ways I'm, I'm just a reporter. I'm just going out and gathering information, doing some research, talking to some people and going back and writing something out. But what I'm, what I'm focusing my reporting on is, is trying to make it speak to and have something to say about big underlying grand narratives that shape everything that we, that we do in modern day life. So uh, that, you know, that certainly requires, yeah, on the one hand, it's, it's very much just regular old cub reporter work <laughs> on some days. Uh, but then it's, it's kind of taking that process and trying to plunge it into a, a deeper place than is conventional. But there's also that that the the way you kind of bring it alive as well that kind of storytelling component. So you've got that, uh, and it's quite complex. That that kind of reporter gathering the the facts, interviewing people, but then humanizing those those interviews and and kind of dropping um, a reader into a real sense of place. And then the kind of uh, grand narrative as well, that larger kind of context in which it resonates. How I mean, how did you? Uh, as somebody who admires what you do, how did you learn how to do that? Find that that balance between story reporting and a kind of almost essayistic uh, reflection and, and cultural context. Probably like a lot of writers, I'm, I think I've been driven 
mostly by insecurity about my work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm constantly writing things and feeling like, oh, you know, they're, they're really not good enough. I need to, I need to draw something more into this. And so over time, I just started approaching just about anything that I work on by thinking, well, I'm going to talk to some people. I'm going to look at all the related science. I'm going to see what philosophers and religious figures have had to say on this topic. Um, you know, I'm going to pull all of these different, pull in all of the complexity that I can and then try to weave it into a coherent whole. And um, that's obviously challenging, but it's also really exciting uh, to work on as a, as a writer. And, and it's as the complexity accumulates, actually, that that's now for me, the most exciting part of the process is as I start to work into something and, and the complexity reveals itself. And I start to see how these different components resonate with one another. Um, that's always to me the most kind of thrilling moment because there's, you know, I realize the potential that the story has. And then, and then of course, the disappointing part is, is uh, trying to achieve that potential in the actual writing, which is um, somebody said something about writing being the process of failing to achieve your original beautiful vision. Um, so that's the back half of the process. But uh, the thing that I've always really loved and love more and more really about long form nonfiction is that I don't think there is any other medium into which you can squeeze as much complexity and still remain coherent. Um, I, I really don't think there's any other way to do it on, a, on kind of a pound for pound basis than with long form nonfiction. Hopefully coherent. That's always what okay. I strive for. <laughs> yeah. A semblance yeah. of coherence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it can also just be like, um, you know, throwing garbage at a powerful fan, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it can have that effect. But yeah, if when you harness or even when you harness it, or even when you can partially harness it, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it just has so much capacity to deliver so much um just so much density of content that's that's still uh that you know that reaches you at so many levels you know it's it's uh it's it's just an incredible form really um i i i agree with you uh when you were talking about uh, complexity and circling around questions. I was thinking of um, something Anton Chekhov uh, wrote in one of his one of his letters, where he said that the writer's job is not to solve the problem; it is to state the problem correctly. Uh, and I think that that is hard to do because other people assume they know the problem. I think one of the things that the day the world stops shopping does is to ask other kinds of questions about what shopping does, what role it plays in our value system, in our sense of meaning, 
um, in the landscape of the world in, in our approach to climate change and biodiversity loss and so forth. But another thing that the book does, and I think I would say this, this is true of, of all of your writing, is that, you know, I thought this is, a, this is a subject, you know, shopping, it can be very personal for people. Um, you're trying to take away my stuff or my right to have it. But um, you manage not to lay a guilt trip with any of your writing. And I find that that's, uh, sometimes it seems like there's a default now to be really judgy in one's writing or to have a position of moral superiority. Um, and it's, it can be harder to pull off asking the questions without you know, pounding people over the head with it. Can you talk about that in writing? Yeah, I mean, certainly it's deliberate for me not to to act in in a really judgmental, not to write in a judgmental way. I, I mean, obviously, part of the reason that I would write that way is because it, the the taking the opposite approach doesn't work on me. I mean, when I read writing that where I feel the the writer is judging me or trying to make me feel uh, guilty. Uh, you know, that's not going to be appealing to me. I'm probably not going to change any of my behavior based on that. Uh, so naturally, I'm not going to write, write that way. And my, yeah, another, I sometimes think of it, of the approach that I try to take anyway, as, as a kind of compassionate journalism. And by that, what I mean is I'm often trying to understand um, with the people that I'm talking to, I feel like my primary goal is to understand and to accurately reflect what their beliefs are and where they came from. And with the reader, I'm just trying to convey something similarly. Like, I don't know where you as a reader are in your relationship to the subject that I'm writing about. So I'm going to try to give you all the information that you need um, to stick with me as we go through this, as we think through this together. And, um, you know, I, I'm not going to be sitting here judging where you are in your thinking about this subject when you sit down to pick up my book. You know, <laughs> it's uh, everybody, if I think about my own thoughts and feelings about consumerism, they've been shaped by uh, you know hundreds of thousands of different experiences over time and this is a subject that i think about a lot um it would be foolhardy of me to stand in judgment of somebody who spends almost all their time thinking about other things and just happens to pick up this book because it catches their attention and interest on some particular given day but might have very little familiarity with uh, consumption, consumerism, critiques of it, problems with it, what have you. So I do try to take this kind of compassionate, have this compassion, compassionate position, not only towards sources, but towards the reader as well. Right. Well, I, I think uh, first-time authors, after they kind of struggle through and, and complete that first book, think, oh, well, the next one will be easier. Ha ha. It never <laughs> is. Uh, I had the pleasure of reading, I, I think, all of your books uh, now. And well, there's a kind of through line through them. They, they often take very kind of different uh, approaches from the, the Dead, Man, Dead Man in Paradise to this. How did your past books 
uh, prepare you to write the next one or, or did they what did you kind of learn take from that and and do you see kind of a progress uh, through those books well i think previous books have steadily pointed me towards um having a having a clearer and clearer sense of what it is i want to accomplish when i sit down and write and so i'm doing less sort of exploring and finding my way on the page um, in the final book than I think I, I did in the past. And that's often because I would look back on, you know, books I'd written and think, um, you know, I, I, I wish that they had said more clearly this thing, or uh, probably most people who've written particularly a first book get to the end of it and say only you know only once i had finished the book did i realize what it was about and then you kind of wish that you had had that insight at the outset and could have written from that position um and so i do i spend a lot more time now uh thinking about you know gathering the material but spending a lot of time thinking about like what does it mean and what do i want to actually say about this this topic and and this material that I've gathered, um, I put a lot more thought into that than I think I used to. The other thing is, you know, writing a book, although it never does get easier, um, you do actually get better at it. And so, <laughs> uh, and so, previous books kind of each one makes me feel like I can do more uh, demanding things. I can take on more demanding issues. So. You know, also, I also just think it's healthy to, to, to be pushed in that way. So when I did The Day the World Stops Shopping, it was like, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I can handle this enormous topic and all of these different aspects of it and weave together stories from around the world. And, you know, I had, I had the confidence that I could, uh, I could take that on. I knew it would be really demanding and it definitely was, but, but I'd did feel like previous experience had gotten me, had gotten me there. Yeah, it builds, uh, I suppose, uh, but then every book presents its own impossibilities, of course, um, which you don't really know until you've gotten in too deep to get out of it. Um, <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's the other side of it. Um, and you do tend to write these books, James, that are a little bit, um, uh daunting because they're not a they're not a you know one narrative on which you're going to hang all the information um and you sort of have to work through structure in some ways juxtaposing different stories and um different themes to add up to something that's greater than the sum of its parts um, which i think is a really complex and challenging uh, way to uh, to write. Um, uh, so I, 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 I guess one of the questions that I have for you is about structure, because, you know, David and I have arm wrestled in the past about how we approach structure. And David is a kind of, I'm going to speak for you, David, um, a kind of engineer who charts it all out and knows where he's going. I don't. I sort of write things and go, huh, what am I actually talking about? Or what are my questions? And I'm trying to get to what my questions are and maybe uh, hope they will surface. 
but um, do you, do you, what's your, what's your approach to structure, James? I'm, I'm, I'm very structural. <laughs> I, uh, I, for example, if I'm doing a magazine article, I will think, uh, I'll do some initial work trying to figure out kind of what the narrative is. And, uh, but then I think, well, what do I, what is all of the material and all of the ground I need to cover to make sense of that narrative? And I will just list those things. I'll say, well, I need to know about um, this and I need to know about that. I need to know uh, what time this happened, how this works, uh, all these kinds of things. And they're just little blocks of material that I know I'm going to need for background and context. And I'll go out and research all those kinds of things. And I will outline and I will, you know, I, I'm very much a structural thinker when it comes to writing. But that said, what I've come to realize over time is that um, intuition plays quite a large role regardless. So, for example, if I'm thinking about how to start a magazine story, no amount of thinking about structure can guide me to that choice. Uh, I can know broadly what I think the start of a magazine story should do, which is find some way to engage the reader and maybe start to draw them into the material of the story. But knowing that uh, doesn't help me determine what of all of the material I've gathered is going to come at the start and what's going to go at the end, what's going to go in the middle. So ultimately, there's still these completely intuitive choices that have to be made, um, informed by the knowledge of what you want to accomplish, but, but truly, like, they have to come from, from the gut. And I, I've noticed that they often do come when I'm on a walk, or when I first wake up, or when I'm in a bath. Um, they're, they're really just popping into my consciousness. Um, and then the so structure is maybe really just a process of giving shape to what's handed to you from your intuition. I, I think you're going to still claim them for the engineers. So <laughs> yeah. unfortunately I, I'm actually going to have to give you that David. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got uh, related to that, uh, James, and, uh, I'm, I'm not a nostalgic person, but I, I have a kind of certain nostalgia for like the, the, the great eras of the, the alternative press in the eighties and nineties. And you, you worked as a, um, an editor, uh, for student press for, for Monday magazine and alternative magazine and for ad busters as well. How how did your experiences as an editor and especially within that kind of milieu that offered like a wide latitude for for writers and readers um inform your your writing practice well i mean i think anybody who does editing editing's just such a gift in terms of allowing you to go through large volumes of other people's writing and uh that really there's I think you could walk into that without without even knowing anything about writing. And if you hacked away at it for long enough, you'd start to realize some basic things that make writing work or fail to work. And so doing a lot of editing was really, really valuable in that sense. Um, and the alternative press aspect of it, something that I think has come out of that is just, it's, I mean, the alternative press in the 1980s and 1990s worked from an interesting place. I think it, it said, well, there's a mainstream of thought out there and it ignores a bunch of subjects. So 
uh, we're going to kind of do the opposite. We're going to live in this world of the ignored subjects and largely overlook the mainstream. And um, that's that's going to be our playpen. And, and we're going to apply you know, more or less traditional journalistic practices, but we're going to apply it in a different space. And I think things like the day the world stops shopping are direct results of having spent a lot of time in that world because it just allowed me to say, um, I'm just going to write entirely about this topic that, that nobody else is really thinking about at the moment. Um, I can see that, you know, I can see this thing that's ignored because I have the habit of doing so now. And I'm going to go at that and make that the thing that I'm going to focus on. And um, I'm going to, you know, even the idea that of treating it as a thought experiment is like, I'm just going to work with these, with this other set of assumptions um, because that's what I want to do. And I feel like I have the, the freedom to do it. And I think that, that all of that comes from the experience in the alternative press in the 1980s, 90s, which I agree, it's like a very interesting uh, historical uh, moment or, or sidetrack of, of journalistic here, of history. What would you say from your experience as an editor, you have learned about what makes good writing or what makes a good editor? You've worked with a lot of editors yourself on books and magazine articles. Well, I think a good editor is a real, a good editor, I think is, it's just really hard to put a finger on what that is because I think a good editor is, is a person who helps a, a writer produce the best work that they can. And that is just such a varied process. I mean, for some people that can mean actually wading in and, you know, doing some active rewriting and things like that, because, uh, because that can help act as an example of what the person might be reaching towards that they're not at this moment, or it can just be standing back and saying, well, I, uh, changed a couple of punctuation marks, but I really just did that for my own pride. You know, <laughs> it's, this piece is fine as is. Um, that's just such a varied, varied experience. But what was the first part of that question? I think I've forgotten. Um, what, what did you learn as an editor about what makes good writing? Oh, um, I think what I've learned is that good writing is always the term I use in teaching is it's always up to something. There are no, there are no words that are just there to make things lovely or add filigree. Um, every word is, is doing a task and every bit of information feels like it needs to be there. And there, I think that's what gives writing that power to drive the reader through is that as long as every single sentence is delivering something that feels valuable and necessary, um, then why would the reader leave? But I think the moment they're, they're wondering the moment these days, particularly with attention spans as they are, <laughs> the moment that a person feels that, uh, that their time is being wasted by the writer, 
uh, I think they there's a good chance they're gonna they're gonna go. Um, and if you're reading a lot of other people's writing as an editor, uh, it's work, and you really appreciate the people who are delivering just a steady stream of value and importance. And you grow weary very quickly of the people who are showing you their uh, fabulous song and dance. <laughs> Interesting. Um, maybe this is asking for insider secrets. Do you have like, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, I, I don't know, a special move or, or your wit? What's your writer's superpower? There's something, something <laughs> that you can do well on the page that you know will just kind of grab somebody's attention. And and maybe along with that, do you or did you ever have like an, an Achilles heel, some kind of weakness in your writing that you you needed an editor to kind of point out um, because you could get past yourself? either either of those or both the the, the latter one is, is pretty decisive i had one editor just say like you don't understand what a narrative is <laughs> 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 and uh, uh and the funny thing was uh not only was she right she was so right that i actually had to go and I'd like read about what a narrative was because <laughs> i mean i'm a self-taught writer i never took any course well i took uh, very, uh, I took one year of uh, of writing instruction, and I'm not sure that I did any of those days without a hangover. So, uh, <laughs> it's uh, I, you know, I, I think I'm pretty pretty genuinely close to to something like being self taught in writing. And uh, so I didn't I didn't know any of the terminology. I didn't know you were supposed to do narrative, um, and. <laughs> yeah, so I actually had to go look it up and then be like, oh, she's right. I'm really not paying attention to that aspect of my writing. Um, and uh, yeah, so I worked on that and improved it. And hopefully, hopefully I'm getting there. In terms of like, uh, I, I, I don't know if there's anything I'd point to that I think I do as a special move or as, you know, that kind of thing. But something that I, I, I'm somewhat proud of is, is endings. Um, I think ending pieces is really is really hard to do well, and I I think that uh, that I have done some endings that I you know that I really I really feel pretty pleased with and and what I've ended up the way I kind of approach endings is not as any kind of a summary um, or anything that even points to the future necessarily or anything like that. But I try to find something that will resonate back through the piece. And in my mind, in my dream, uh, people read the last few lines and it, it's like, it strikes the, the gong and the whole piece will hum with the resonance of it. That's the goal. And as I say, my, my dream of the ideal reader, but I have had people say like, you know, like the, the, the end of that piece was really, really powerful or tied it together or those sorts of things. And, and, um, and I think some of them are quite, you know, quite surprising. So. Um, so we've been talking a bit about structure and style. And I think both of those things come into endings. Um, but maybe for my last question for you, before we let you go, um is maybe you can tell us 
the story of the brick and the jellyfish, which I have learned <laughs> from you. <laughs> well, the story of the brick and the jellyfish is the best part of this, I, in my opinion, is that I thought I first heard about the brick and the jellyfish from the, uh, from the terrific writer, John Valiant, uh, who's also a friend. And then I went, I, I had used it in a couple of talks about writing. And then I went to John and said, John, I feel like I should let you know that I've been using your brick and jellyfish thing in, in talks. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I said, the brick and jellyfish thing. And I explained it. He was like, wow, like that's a really interesting thing, but I have never heard of it. And I certainly wasn't the person who told you about it. And I, I can't find anyone who's ever told me. I think this. you so, get to take credit from now on. It's well, yours. I mean, what I've concluded <laughs> is that John Valiant came to me in a dream and, and gave me uh, this idea of the, the brick and jellyfish. But anyway, the bricks and jellyfish idea is that a, that a story or a paragraph or any, any chunk of writing basically must be built primarily of bricks uh, or it will not. It will not hold up if you, you if you have two objects with which to build uh, a wall, and those objects are bricks and jellyfish. Then you can try to build a brick, or you can try to build a wall entirely with jellyfish. That won't work. You can try to build a wall with uh, only bricks. It will stand up, but it won't have much razzle dazzle. Uh, you won't have made as much use of your jellyfish as you could. If you build a wall that's primarily brick, but has jellyfish inserted uh, in just the right quantity throughout, then you have this stable structure uh, filled with uh, filled with razzle dazzle. You know, filled with moments where things go weird or things get shiny, um, things get slippery, things get interesting. We'll say, um, and I, I think that's what I really strive for in writing is to make sure that I'm getting in enough jellyfish to keep things interesting, but I'm ultimately building the wall out of bricks. Great. Well, I do have that. Well, a couple of questions, but I'll maybe end with one. I mean, uh, we're talking about kind of reaching readers and engaging uh, readers, and we've got sort of whole new generations of readers. And what I find interesting, I mean, you've, you've written a lot of uh, unconventional takes on in in a conventional book or essay format, but you've also kind of worked in in other uh, media. You were you I believe you were the writer for Bear Seventy One, which if people don't know is just this incredible interactive web narrative in which I believe you had to kind of write from the point of view of of a, a mother bear, and I, I've kind of per, uh, played it and had my students kind of um, watch it and it just brings them to tears. And you also did the the Hundred Mile Diary in which you, uh, with Lisa Smith, kind of co-wrote a blog that became a book, that became a reality TV show, that became a kind of whole cultural phenomenon. Do you want to just talk a little bit about writing in these kind of different media and, and kind of reaching different audiences in that way and those experiences? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's all the same work. So I, I uh, whether it's something that's being put to film or... Uh, or it's, you know, if it was a video game narrative, uh, <laughs> anything, you know, any kind of nonfiction storytelling uh, feels to me like the task is the same. And that is to take a look at what you can do with the tools that are available to you, which for me normally is just 
basically a keyboard and a screen, but in some of these other cases is an actor's voice or uh, visuals on film, still photos, uh, audio, you know, you name it, um, special effects. And so I just think, well, I have these tools. How am I going to use them to do that same old work of uh, delivering a story that means something or presenting an argument and uh, making it making it compelling from first word to last, from first moment on screen to last. Um, it's all, it all, it always, it all feels the same to me. And and something that I really like about that is that, uh, you know, as I say, I more or less, uh, taught myself the craft to a large extent. And, and, um, I, I, you know, I've worked in these different mediums, but I have never trained in any of them. I'm not trained in film. I don't, uh, I don't even watch a lot of visual stuff. Um, I've worked in audio only. I've worked in all kinds of different mediums, but it's really just getting the sense of how to deliver a non-fiction, you know, deliver non-fiction storytelling. That that turned out to be the skill that I really needed. And fortunately, it's bottomless, and you can spend your entire life learning how to do it. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a good spot to end. Uh, James, thank you so much for sharing your time and sharing your stories. My pleasure. Thanks again.